Let's open the Word of God, please, to John chapter 3. Boy, you got to love John chapter 3. Terrific. David, go ahead and throw that up here. Sometimes people wonder what my sisters look like. I would say I got the brains, I got the beauty, uh, which isn't far from wrong. But, uh, and, uh, I can see all of my sister on the right, but the way that this projects, we cut off my, uh, oldest sister, Karen, and she would not like having her face cut off like that. <laughs> so I'm glad she's not seeing that. There's my mom in the middle, of course. Uh, the sister between my mom and me is Brenda. She's going to get married. Um, again, on September 15th, and I'm going to be giving her away. So, uh, good riddance. No, I'm kidding. Uh, <laughs> no, but I've never done that. I've done a lot of weddings and stuff, and I was a groom once and an usher and stuff like that, but I've never done that before. Second Timothy 3.16 says, All scripture is given by inspiration of God, is profitable for doctrine, for reproof, for correction, for instruction in righteousness, that the believer might be mature, thoroughly furnished in all kinds of good works. So all scripture is inspired and profitable, angel, but not all scripture is equally strategic. Uh, John 10.35, as opposed to John 3.16. In uh, John 10.35, we read, Jesus wept. It's the shortest verse in the English Bible. And in context, there's a lot of good lessons from that. They really are practical, very important lessons from that. But I'm going to venture to say that John 3.16 is more strategic than John 10.35. It's one of the most strategic, some would say it's the most important verse in the Bible. And we're going to look at John 3.16 in its larger context, which we tend not to do enough this morning as we continue our Life of Christ A through Z Study and we come to letter I. Incredible interview. Jesus and Nicodemus, the major teacher of rabbinical Judaism in the first century, interacts with Jesus. And we're going to see that morality and religion cannot earn salvation. But first, let's pray for our teachability to God's word. And this passage is so familiar to a lot of us. I, I went ahead and paraphrased it. It's kind of a paraphrase with a running commentary uh, in your in your notes, and I'm going to use that. I'm not taking your Bible out of your hand, uh, Jessica, but I just uh, want to bring out some things you might not see readily because you're so familiar with this passage. And so uh, I'm going to be working off that today. So uh, feel free to use your Bible. I'm not taking that away from you. But as we pray for teachability, let's pray for those who protect and serve like our active military peace officers, firefighters, and um, Dr. Deeg, if you would, lead us in prayer in that direction. Amen. You know, a week ago Friday, Dr. Leitner got promoted to heaven, and this Thursday, uh, August 16th, 2018, will be the fourth anniversary of Rick uh, Buchanan, our beloved brother, elder, TBFer, uh, his promotion to heaven. And I, I ask permission with Carla for this, but I want to, uh, pull out and attribute to him a top ten list I did right after he did the uh, Oklahoma City Half Marathon uh, several years ago. And there, there's a picture, that's Rick in the middle there, okay. And notice how fat his legs are. It's going to be a, a punchline in a minute. That's, that's Rick doing his thing. Uh, top seven things Rick Buchanan was thinking while competing in the Oklahoma City Half Marathon. 13.1 miles. When Carla signed me up for this, she told me it was 1.31 miles. That's the only reason he did it. The main reason I'm doing this is because my legs are just too fat, which they really weren't fat. After I finish this half marathon, I will dedicate the achievement to my all-time favorite, quote-unquote, physical fitness hero, Mr. Elvis Presley. He really was. That's just a joke. Just for fun, after mile 12, I will stop speed walking and start speed hopping. These aren't, you know, necessarily funny. They're a tribute to my man, Rick. Uh, and I tell you this, he laughed out loud at a couple of these. So just be aware of that. LeBron James is an amazing athlete. 
But did anybody else notice he's not man enough to show up and compete one-on-one against me in this event? He didn't show. As soon as I finish walking this 13.1 miles, I'm driving to the nearest McDonald's and inhaling at least 13.1 Big Macs. And the last one, that's Rick and Ashley at the start line, starting line just before it started at about 4.32 a.m. or whatever they did it. The number one thing Rick was finished, it was thinking uh, while competing, covering 13.1 miles in two hours and 45 minutes on a Sunday morning was harder than I thought it would be. But boy, it's a whole lot easier than having to listen to Pastor Brad for 45 minutes on a Sunday morning. <laughs> I think that's the one he laughed at. Now that's him at the finish line. Notice how good he looks there and how tired he looks there with with the medal. And I, in my day, I ran a lot of 5Ks and 10Ks, 3.1, 6.2. I had no desire to walk or run half a marathon or a marathon. That's where I drew the line. Love him. Uh, we're looking at letter I in the life of Christ A through Z. Incredible interview. So let's put these on a map because these are real events. Ethan, these are real events. They really happened in real places. Like you can go there and see these places. What does A stand for? Angels announce the pregnancies first of John the baptizing Jewish prophet. Everybody calls him John the Baptist, but he was a Jew. Uh, predicted in the Old Testament to get the nation and the world ready for the coming of Jesus. So Zacharias, John's daddy, was told even though they're too old to have children, they were going to have children the old-fashioned way after he finished his due course uh, in the temple in Jerusalem. So that happened in Jerusalem, but then A prime uh, 2, or A2, is the supernatural, angelic announcement of a supernatural virgin conception kind of pregnancy, first to Mary, and three months later to Joseph after she came back from visiting Elizabeth near Jerusalem. That's A, angels announced. B, birth in Bethlehem. Bethlehem was predicted by the Old Testament to be the place the Messiah would be born, and that's what happened literally in that very city, and you can go visit that city, and we will, Lord willing, next May. C stands for carpentry career from the age of 12, an apprentice, all the way until he was about 30. Luke says when Jesus began his ministry, Abby, he was about 30. So plus or minus a year or two probably. Uh, but let's just say 30. And as a tecton, he would have been a, a worker in wood and or stone, a skilled worker in wood or stone. He does that for 18 years. Uh, I would not, hey, Lindell, I would not have organized the Messiah's ministry, 18 years working on mosaic floors and other projects and then three years preaching. But boy, you, know, you don't second-guess God. You will never have enough information to legitimately second-guess God, but boy, it's tempting. But I wouldn't have designed it that way myself. D and E go together. At D, the dove descends at Jesus' baptism at the hands of John the Baptist. The righteousness of Jesus is declared by God the Father. E, enemy entices. He goes one-on-one with the ultimate spirit being uh, evil guy, um, the righteousness of Christ was demonstrated. All this before he begins his ministry in its fullest form. After he interacts with Satan, he comes back to the area where he was baptized, deed of descent, and attracts his first five followers. Or I should say, Carol, John the Baptist points some of his followers and all of John's followers were looking for the Messiah, John was saying, was on the ground. And if you remember the word Japan, those are the first five followers, Gibson, John, Andrew, Peter, Philip, and Nathaniel. And how does John the Baptist or John the baptizing Jewish prophet refer to Jesus twice in that passage in John 1? What label? Son of God, son of man, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Jesus comes to be our substitute. Salvation is of the Lord. It's not something you earn, deserve. You can't unearn it. You can't undeserve it. First followers. G, great guests at a wedding. Jesus and his disciples, John, Andrew, Peter, Philip, and Nathaniel, are all from Galilee. They go back to the northern region of Galilee, and it says they're invited to a wedding reception, which could go on for days, and that's where Jesus does his first miracle. Last week, we were in Jerusalem for H. Harsh house cleaning. When the Messiah goes to Jerusalem, at the very beginning of his ministry, at the grand opening of his ministry, you might say, um, Henry... The system is totally corrupt. They're ripping people off to make money. And Jesus says, I publicly, categorically reject this. This is a a bad caricature of the plan. 
And it's a corruption of the, the whole intent of what God was doing in the temple. Now today we're going to be still in Jerusalem, some overlapping H and I in purpose during this time in which, in addition to uh, turning over the tables where the money changers were ripping off the people in the temple precincts, we read that uh, while he was in Jerusalem during this first trip during his public ministry for this Passover in 30 A.D., many believed in his name after they observed the signs he's doing. He's been doing miracles, probably healing kind of miracles, in Jerusalem so the priest will know who he is, so the people will know who he is, and that's part of the background for what we're going to see now um, in our passage today. By the way, really... In many ways, I and Jay, we'll look at Jay, Lord willing, next week. Incredible interview, Jesus, Nicodemus, Jay stands for Jive at Jacob's Well. They go together, just like D and E go together, the righteousness declared, the righteousness demonstrated. This week we're going to see that nobody's so good they don't need salvation by faith in Christ, Nicodemus. Next week we'll see nobody's so bad they can't have salvation by faith in Jesus. Now, kind of a key biblical statement that I'm seeing as the framework for this overall series is found in John 1. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. In the beginning, the Word, a title for Jesus as the second person of the Trinity, already was. He's eternal. He's transcendent out of times, outside of time, space, matter, and energy. In the beginning, the Word already was. The Word was with God the Father as a separate person. They didn't create because they were lonely. They didn't need us. They create the universe as it is out of sheer super grace. And the word was God, not God the Father, but was deity. All the attributes of God the Father, Jesus has and the Spirit has. And that person, Jesus, the second person of the Trinity, the word, halagos, became flesh through the virgin conception. Nine months later, virgin birth and dwelt among us. Okay, But today, let's look at John 3, 1 through 21. Incredible interview, being good or even great in human terms, morally or religiously or theologically, isn't good enough for salvation. In other words, moral, religiously orthodox people need salvation through faith in Christ. Nicodemus is the poster boy for that. So let's compare real quickly. This is like a mini-series now, this week and next week for two weeks, inside the larger A through Z series. Because in chapter 3, we're going to see what Jesus teaches about salvation for moral, religious people. And what he teaches is, you're not so good, you can earn this. You need to receive it as a gift through faith in me. Next week, we're going to see a woman who's been married and divorced, probably because she has affairs multiple times. I'm reading that in there, but I'm quite sure that's probably what happened. She's married and divorced five times, because it's her fault, and now she's living with her boyfriend, and Jesus teaches her that salvation for an immoral, religiously unorthodox person is available because you're not so bad that you can't have salvation. Because I'm going to forget to say this, I'm going to say it now. Most of you are professing believers here. Here's the good news. God is not any less gracious to believers who stumble than he is to sinners who come the first time for salvation. Okay? And sometimes we forget that. That's not a peg. That's not license to sin, but it's liberty to serve. And you just get back on the, on the wagon. You know, Proverbs says the one that to kind of, um, rationalize their sins will not prosper. The believer who does that, but the one who acknowledges sin and forsakes it will be blessed. You know, if we confess our sins, he's faithful and just. You walk around the world, you get your feet dirty. Jesus will wash your feet. You don't need another bath again. But uh, we're going to see the amazing grace of Jesus is necessary for moral, religiously nice, good, sweet people like white American uh, you know, nominal Christians just as much as it is for immoral Samaritan people. Uh, that's the way the passage breaks down. Let's work through, and I'm using my paraphrase this morning. First, Nicodemus's question, complimentary calls him rabbi, which means, oh, great one, just meant good teacher, but calculated. A Pharisee named Nicodemus, we're in Jerusalem for the first Passover in Jesus' ministry, who was a ruler of the Jews, came to Jesus at night and said to him, rabbi, that's a very exalted term, it's a very positive thing. Uh, He doesn't say, I think you're a heretic, he calls him a rabbi, a very, very uh, honorific term. 
Uh, we know you come from God as a teacher because no one can do these signs, the signs that we read about in verse 23 of chapter 2. During this time, many believe because he's doing signs that prove he is who he says to be, he claims to be, to be the Messiah. Because uh, nobody can do these things unless God is with him. What's a Pharisee? Uh, sometimes uh, before the students at Cameron know who I am, uh, but they know I'm a, a evangelical preacher because I tell them the first day just to warn them. You know, it's a warning disclaimer. I'll say something like, uh, "I don't know what uh, church you go to or if you go to church, but at my church we talk about sex all the time. The Pharisees, the Sadducees, the Essenes, <laughs> and the Zealots. S e c t s. You know, there are four major sects in first century Judaism." The Pharisees and the Sadducees, the ones that hung out in Jerusalem, had their hands on the power uh, that be under the Roman domination, of course. The Sadducees controlled the Sanhedrin, but the Pharisees were the minority parties like Democrats and Republicans in a way. So this is a guy, and by the way, the word Pharisee means special, okay? So the Sadducees organized first, and Sadiq in Hebrew, Sadducees means righteous, so the Sadducees got together and said, we're going to start a group and we're going to call ourselves Righteous Ones, the Sadducees. And then the Pharisees came up later and said, let's, let's call ourselves the Special Ones. Wouldn't that be great if you had two factions in the church, the Righteous Ones and the Special Ones? You know, so They're special. The Pharisees believed in a very wooden interpretation of the Old Testament law, and they believed that Jews either ethnic Jews or proselytes like Ruth, who obeyed the law good enough, could earn their way to heaven by their own good works. That was what they were selling. That's what they believed. A guy who believes that but isn't quite sure he's good enough, which is why Jesus takes this way he does, I think, named Nicodemus, who was a ruler of the Jews, a member of the Sanhedrin, this council of 70 that ran the society under Roman domination, uh, the Jewish uh, Senate, Supreme Court rolled into one, came to Jesus at night. Now, there's a lot of uh, people reading all kinds of interesting things about that. Uh, and I think probably uh, the reason he gets together with Jesus at night is because they're both very busy during the day and because he wants to have a good long talk with Jesus. He wants his undivided attention. And Nicodemus is a busy guy, too. It's just if you, wanted to, if you want to talk to Dale for a long time, you can't. You can't talk to him after 6.30 because he goes to sleep at 6.30 because he wakes up at 3 o'clock in the morning to go work on the oil wells. But don't talk to him when he's working either because he's, he's, he's busy. And he, he does, you know, he does the work of 10 men. Did I read that the way you said, wanted me to write that? Yeah. He does the work of 10 men. These are busy people. And I think this is probably not uh, an attempt to go under the radar because I think Nicodemus has been pushed unofficially by some of the other Sanhedrin members Check this guy out, and let's find out exactly who he thinks he is and what he's trying to do, because we need to kind of deal with this. And he says to him, very complimentary, and I think Nicodemus is open, um, at least at this initial phase, uh, Rabbi, oh great one, we know you've come from God because you're doing miracles that clearly uh, are supernatural. He's not explaining them away. And again, we're not told exactly what they are in the Gospel of John, but we're told he did does signs and people are believing in him in Jerusalem as the, as the Christ, right? Um, now, by the way, I said Nicodemus's question. You see that, Gibson? Read that carefully. There's no question there. Whoops. No. Um, let me psychoanalyze what he's thinking. His question that he wants to get to, but Jesus will not let him ask it. Because Jesus knows what's in the heart. He says, you got to be born again. But I think what Nicodemus is about to say, hey, Rabbi, we know that you've got supernatural power, but you don't really think you're the Messiah, do you? That's what he's going to say. And if you do think you're the Messiah, you do think your job is to throw off the Roman yoke and set up a Jewish nation that will be the preeminent nation in the world, right? Isn't that what you want to do? Because we can support that. I think that's where he's going. Now, Eric, don't do this the first day you're in heaven, but within the first couple hundred years, walk up to Nicodemus and say, was Pastor Brad right on that? And you know what Nicodemus is going to say? He was always right about everything. You should have taken notes, man. <laughs> right? I, I really believe he's going in that direction. He's setting Jesus up for a leading question. 
He's coming with the company's agenda, yet with a, a positive attitude, because Jesus stops him in his tracks before he can get into all that to go to what's really in his heart. Now, Nicodemus is an aging guy who is dedicated to the proposition that people can, Jewish people and Jewish proselytes can earn their way to heaven by being good enough observers of the Old Testament law. Now, the problem with all salvation by works schemes is they promote eternal insecurity because nobody can know if you're good enough. Okay? Uh, in the syllabus you get at Cameron University, uh, you know, we give you exactly what you're going to have to do to make your grade and exactly what the grade scale is. You might say, well, that's everybody knows 90 to 100 is an A, 80 to 89 is a B. Number one, a lot of them don't know that. <laughs> I have people like you do A, B, C, and D, like, uh, you know, they'll say like, uh, what does D, what does D stand for? Or does F mean fine? I've had people ask me, does F mean fine? What high school did you go to? I mean, and at Dallas Seminary, guess what? It wasn't 90 to 100. It was 94 was the lowest A. It, 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 that didn't calculate to me. If I made a 93 on something, to me, that's an A. That's an A with an asterisk, whether they give you a B plus or not. But the problem with embracing salvation by good works is it's not the way God does it, number one. He doesn't recognize it as valid. Number two, you never know if you're good enough. My wife was a good Methodist growing up in high, in high school, through high school. She went to Tyler Junior College, went to a free Methodist church, heard the gospel clearly, and realized, I thought I was going to heaven because I was a lot better than the average person. I wasn't a partier and a bad person. Uh, and then she realized that uh, all have sinned and come short of the glory of God. The wages of sin, and you got it, is death. But the gift of God is eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. God demonstrated his love toward us, and that while we were yet sinners, Christ died and paid for our sins. So Nicodemus is an old guy dedicated to the proposition that if you're good enough, you can earn it, but he's not sure he's good enough. And he's looking at his mortality, and Jesus just says, here's what we need to deal with before we get into more theology. Unless you're born again, you can't see, meaning experience. The kingdom. You can't go to heaven. You're not going to go to heaven uh, unless you receive it as a gift through the second or new birth. Verse 4, Nicodemus literally, and I mean literally misses the point by a million miles. Jesus says you've got to be born again to see the kingdom, to go to heaven. He says, how can a man be born again when he's old? See, Nicodemus is old and worried about whether or not he's good enough, whether he's climbed the ladder high enough. The Old Testament law wasn't a ladder to climb to God to get to heaven. It was a mirror showing you you needed a Savior because everybody broke the law. And Nicodemus knew he had broken the law. So you never know if you're good enough. Uh, you can't enter into a, sec- a second time into your mother's womb and be born, can you? Now, by the way, the word um, again there, born again in this passage, uh, an othen in the original means again or from above, like from heaven in this context. So which one is it? It really, both are true. But in this context, he's talking about a physical birth as opposed to a second spiritual birth subsequent to physical birth. Again, is the best translation, in my opinion. How can a man be born again when he's old? That's the way Nicodemus understood it. You can't go back in your mom's womb and be born again, can you? Jesus is clearly misunderstood here, like we saw last week. What happened last week? Destroy this temple. You'd have to be the Messiah to put us out of business here at the temple. You don't have authority over the temple unless you're a Messiah. Uh, what sign do you show us to prove that you are really a Messiah? Jesus says, destroy this temple, meaning his body in three days I'll raise it up, Right? Jesus goes out of his way not to teach at a third grade level. Sorry, okay? It's fine to have third grade material at their level. I'm not sure the first thing you want to teach the kindergarten class is the lake of fire. You know, up to me, right? Or maybe I'd probably skip Genesis 38, you know? if you Don't go there yet, but it's pretty juicy, you know? I wouldn't teach that to kindergarten kids. But he doesn't teach at a third grade level. He says stuff that he knows people will misunderstand at first, in part, as he says later about parables, so the unbelievers will have less stuff to blaspheme, but also so that people who really want it will think through it and really get it, okay? Uh, teach a man to fish, 
You know, what? give a man a fish, he'll eat for a day. Teach a man to fish, he'll buy a bass boat and every Sunday go fishing. He's not going to church anymore. No. That's just the way I look at it, you know. But uh, but uh, even though the main things are plain things in the Bible, uh, some of these nuances take a little while to get, and you're going to have to think. And I know that we've got digital communication where everything's instant gratification unless you've got a cartoon that illustrates it. That's all you want to you want to limit your thinking to that level. Not going to work with adult size temptations and issues like we've got now. And uh, you need more than a motivational speaker every week to tell you you know you need to do more better. Uh, you need to really understand God and fellowship with God, and that would help if you had some truth about that. So Nicodemus's question: You're not really the Messiah, are you? And if you are, you are going to overthrow the Romans and set up a political kingdom, right? Jesus says, you got to be born again. Let's talk about the first things first. Nicodemus says, huh? i got to be physically born again? He takes it literally, and Jesus is talking about a second spiritual birth. Now look at this. Jesus brilliantly clarifies the confusion. Look at verse 5 and 6. Let me explain what I mean here, bud. Unless one is born physically and spiritually too, he can't see the, the kingdom. Unless one is born of the water, the water breaks before you're born physically. I don't remember that. Uh, Cameron, you haven't heard all the jokes yet. I've got eight jokes. You've probably heard five of them. Another one I like, I repeat it because it's been, I like enjoy I enjoy it. Is uh, you don't know this about me yet, but I was born at a very young age, very close to my mom at the time. And at some point, before I was born, I presume the water broke. Unless one's born of the water physically, that's what Nicodemus is thinking. I'll be born physically twice, and a second way, a second kind of birth, into the spirit. Spiritually, she or he cannot enter in, see, experience, go to heaven. You're not good enough to earn this, Nicodemus. That which is born of the flesh, physical. That which is born of the spirit is spiritual. The Lord's not talking about a second physical birth, but a different kind of birth. Verse 7 and 8. Don't be amazed, I said, you've got to be born spiritually. You've got to be born again a second time. The spiritual birth is like the wind. It's invisible, but it's real. The wind blows around you. You can hear it. You can see some of its effects, but you can't see it. That's the kind of birth we're talking about here. Uh, Nicodemus asks a follow-up question. How can these things be? And um, like I say in the notes, we see here a clergyman whose entire theological system has been shattered. <laughs> I can be born again to go to heaven? I can't be better than those dirty Gentiles and maybe get in at wherever you draw the line. I'm just slightly above it. You know, I'm 94 if I want to add down to seminary. Um, now here's the, here's the cool stuff. Verses 10 through 15. Jesus challenges Nicodemus to embrace the change. This is called repentance from dead works. People tend to think you gotta repent of sin. Yeah, you, you, when you're saved, you're convicted of sin, righteousness, and judgment. Sin, you got it, stop rationalizing it, stop denying it. Uh, righteousness, you don't have it, but you need it, you can't crank it out by trying to be a good Jew, or a good Christian. And judgment, it's coming. Okay, that's prerequisites to trust Jesus as Savior, and that happens every time somebody trusts Christ as Savior, regardless of how much emotion you have when you're doing that. Uh, David Bearden was very emotional the day he got saved. I was less emotional, but I was scared spitless when I had to walk down the aisle after I got saved because the preacher told me that if I really believed this, God wanted me to walk down the aisle. And I was so self-conscious as a nine-year-old kid who wasn't even supposed to be in that service and my mom's waiting for me out in the car and she's going to be mad at me. But he knew what he was talking about because preachers, I, at that point, I just assumed preachers knew what they were talking about. Now as a preacher for 37 years in a row, I don't assume all preachers know what they're talking about <laughs> because I know sometimes I don't know what I'm talking about. But uh, I was not uh, crying. I was more uh, just nervous about uh, getting in front of all those people. And I wish I could go on the time machine, Scott, and go back to the First Baptist Church of Opelika, Florida. I bet there were 70, I bet there were fewer people than this in that auditorium, but it looked to me like 10,000. And I did not, I would have walked, I'd rather walk on coals of fire than walk in front of that group of people at that point. But I did it because I was convinced that since I really had believed in Jesus that morning, after he finally told me why Jesus died on the cross, he mainly talked about how terrible sin was for 45 minutes. He was a Baptist evangelist. And he convinced me as a nine-year-old, and I had not done any drug deals or robbed any banks at that point, but I was totally convicted of my sin, my need, my inability. And I thought he was saying, you've got to be perfect to go to heaven. So, man, if you sin, you've had it. 
That's the way it sounded to me. And he finally got to the cross and said, Jesus died to pay for your sins. He did the work for you. If you'll trust him, if you'll accept him, if you'll receive him, as many as received him, you can have it just as you are. And then we sang just as I am. Then he said, if you really believe this, you got to walk the aisle now and sign this card. And uh, I later would work in a Baptist church when I was at Dallas Seminary. I was the night watchman, uh, switchboard operator, if you can believe that, <laughs> at Park City's Baptist Church several nights a week, including sometimes Sunday nights. And uh, I saw a lot of people who, who Sunday nights were getting baptized and listening to them talk. I'm not sure they trusted Christ, but they knew they were joining this building, this organization. And it's not enough to have your name on a, on a roll if you haven't trusted Christ. But anyway, uh, look at verse 10. Jesus challenges Nicodemus to repent of trusting in in uh, uh, bad good works or good works uh, that are useless for you. Jesus says, "You're the 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 the, the uh, definite article means you're the par excellence, the most famous, the most respected teacher in Israel, dedicated to the proposition you can save yourself by being a good Jew. You're the teacher of Israel. Don't understand these basic things." Genesis 15, 6, Abraham believed and it was counted him as righteousness. You didn't cover that. Uh, Theology 101, Lesson 1A. We, everybody wants to have Jesus and the apostles. We only have five at that point, and they're not capable of teaching anything at this point. They're brand new. Okay, They're just trainees. Who else have we seen preaching the gospel of the kingdom, the Messiah's on the ground at this point? John the baptizing Jewish prophet. That's the only one who's doing it, Debbie, okay? So Jesus says, we, John the Baptist, and Jesus speak of what we know and testify of what we've seen, and it's all true. But you, now watch this. This is gold here, David, that you don't accept. That's plural in the Greek text. Ken, you won't see that in your English because you, Y-O-U, can be singular or plural. But Julie, that means He's talking to Nicodemus as a representative, at least of some of the Sanhedrin, who said, why don't you go check this guy out and see if he really thinks he's the Messiah, and if he does, make sure he wants to overthrow the Romans and just make this a political thing so we can keep a good thing going because we're getting rich off of this deal. He says, yet y'all, all y'all, I should say, Pharisaical Judaism, yet all y'all don't accept our testimony. You don't want a Savior. You want to save yourself. You trust in yourself for salvation, and you think you might be good enough. He's not sure, but you think it is possible for people to earn salvation by being good Jews instead of receiving a new birth. Forgiveness is a uh, as a as a gift from God based on the work of the Messiah. Right? Then he says, "If I told you basic earthly things, I'm talking about a relationship with God, kind of like the wind that's invisible but real, using earthly analogies, and you don't believe, and you don't doesn't fit your system." How are you going to fit it into your system? I'll teach you anything deeper than that. I can't talk about the millennium yet, which is what you want me to talk about, until we talk, until we get you, until you put faith in me. Believe me. Believe what I'm saying. I know what I'm talking about. Nobody's, none of you, you, uh, uh, Pharisaical teachers have been to heaven and come down to tell us what all this means, but I came from heaven. I know what I'm talking about, okay? I'm teaching you truth nobody else knows because I've experienced. I'm the son of man. Jesus refers to himself as the Son of Man much more than he refers to himself as the Son of God. Uh, they are both titles for the Messiah. Son of Man is a title for the Messiah emphasizing his humanity, that is true humanity, Natalie. Son of God is a title for the Messiah, the Savior, emphasizing his deity. And in context, the title Son of Man for the Messiah, the Savior, goes back to Daniel 3, which is actually a scene in heaven in the future just before what we would call the second advent. It's a very glorious title. It's not a, a diminutive title, which some liberals want to act like it is. Uh, look at verse 14. Just like Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, and he's talking about what is a fairly obscure incident in the life of Moses in Numbers 21. Okay, Now watch this. Cameron, this guy Nicodemus would have memorized the Pentateuch, the first five books. So he knows about Numbers 21. But the average Jew in that day, probably there's, there's 50 things that are more exciting and more prominent in the life of Moses than the serpent in the wilderness episode. And the average American Christian doesn't even know, can't even find numbers, you know, um, in most cases. But Jesus just kind of assumes you know this basic biblical information. 
Okay, it's good to have biblical information, but it's not an end in itself. But just like Moses looked up the serpent in the wilderness after they were grumbling and complaining and whining about God and second-guessing God, God sent snakes, they were causing people to die, the people said, do something, Moses prays to God, he says, put a serpent, bronze serpent on a pole, brass serpent on a pole, everyone who looks at it, one look of faith will heal them from the snake bites. Just like Moses did that, put the serpent on the pole, I, the Son of Man, must be lifted up, ultimately on the cross. This is three years before the cross when he's speaking this. So that whoever believes in him, meaning in me, Jesus, as the Savior, will have everlasting life. Now, I've said this a lot of times over the years about John 3.16, but it also happens in verse 15. Whosoever believes or whoever believes, I see church signs sometimes when we travel down to Texas and we see all the church signs on the road. Uh, Are you a whosoever? You know, and that's, I get that. But actually, in the Greek text, it's even stronger than that because you've got the articular present active participle. It doesn't say whosoever. It says all of the ones who believe. God so loved the world that I uh, gave his own son that all of the ones, 100% of those who believe in him. That's even stronger to my mind. And here he uses that same expression here uh, in the Greek text of uh, verse 15. So that's pretty cool. Now, just so you'll know, when you get to verse 16 through 21, uh, some theologians, commentators, liberal and conservative, believe that at this point, Jesus is not being quoted, and John, who's writing under inspiration, is giving you editorial information. That's possible. That's not my view. I think we're continuing to get exactly what Jesus said here. But either way, it's inspired, it's reliable, it's infallible, it's indispensable. But just if you read that, I mean, if we found out next week from some kind of source that this was actually John writing this, it doesn't hurt anything. It doesn't affect my convictions about any of this anyway, because it would be inspired text. But I think the Lord continues to talk in the third person. But he says, and this is John 3.16, for God, uh, God the Father, you know, the architect of the plan, God the Father is the architect of the plan, Jesus is the active agent in the plan of salvation, the Holy Spirit, God the Holy Spirit, is the activating agent. It convicts the sin, world of sin rises into judgment, draws us, opens our hearts so we can believe. He doesn't believe for us. He doesn't chunk faith into us, but he makes it possible, right? Uh, for God, as the architect, God the Father of the plan of salvation, loved the world so much. What do you know about the world, word world, cosmos, especially in the Gospel of John, but all the Gospels? Is it a good term? It's not talking about the planet. It's talking about humanity at large, and humanity at large can, at its worst, can be really ugly. People will lie, cheat, steal, rape, murder, pillage, and then justify it all. Sometimes on religion, some based, sometimes based on atheism, Marxism, whatever it is, they can justify anything. Uh, Jesus says uh, that he was in the world, but he was not of the world. The world is not a good thing. This does not mean the set of the elect. Now, some people on the far side of Calvinism read John 3.16 this way. God so loved the set of the elect that he gave his only begotten son for the set of the elect. So that whosoever the set of the elect believe, that's that's not good. Because by definition, all the elect believe. So that messes up their system, shall not bear and so on. But that's not the way John uses his term. That's not the way Jesus uses the terms. The world's a bad place full of immoral people and moral people, both of whom need salvation through faith in Christ, both of whom can have it. God the Father, the architect of the plan, loved the world so much. God demonstrated his love toward us in that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. With the result that he gave not only begotten, which is a whole different word, monogenitas, but monogenes, unique, only one of its kind. Most of the modern translations say unique, only one of its kind. That diagram on the first page of your notes where the second person takes on humanity, he's the unique person. God the Father didn't die for your sins. The Holy Spirit didn't die for your sins. God the Son is the one person to nature, Father. I mean, God, human being, uh, unique person in the universe. He's the one that's the Savior, the active agent. He gave his unique son that all of the ones who believe in him, instead of trusting in themselves that they might be able to earn it, 
Future tense, Nancy, shall not perish. And that's not talking about physical death, but ultimate final judgment. But have, Lord, that's present tense. Uh, it's called regeneration in the theology books. Regeneration is the impartation of eternal spiritual life to the sinner who believes. And it's your present possession the day you trust Christ. It's not, I hope I'm going to get eternal life when I die. If you've, if you've believed, you got it. But to the one who does not work, but who believes in him, it justifies the ungodly. That person's faith is reckoned as righteousness. Uh, John 3.16 is the gospel in a verse. I often tell you that if you don't know how to witness and you're in a case where somebody wants to hear the gospel, and if you start looking around and praying about it, you'll have more people cross your path that way. Angel, you can always, if you don't have a tract, if you don't have James Mitchell to do it for you or Brad McCoy to do it for you, just walk through John 3.16. Three things God wants everybody to know. God couldn't love you any more than he already loves you. People need to know God loves them. God loved the world, not just the set of the elect. That can't be the set of the elect for reasons we told them, told you about. God so loved the world. He loves you. God couldn't give any more for you. He gave Jesus to die, pay for your way into heaven. When he finished the atonement, he says, it is finished. Tell us die. Paid in full. That's what that means in Greek. God couldn't love you any more than he loves you. People need to hear that. God couldn't give any more for you than he's given for you. God couldn't make it clear how you can receive the new birth. Believe. Believe is active, receptive trust. It's not mental assent to historical facts. It's saying, Lord Jesus, I'm a sinner. It's my fault. Yeah, my mom warped me. My big sister really had bad effects on me. It's all her fault, you know. I tend to think Carol's my fourth sister I actually like, you know. But, uh, uh, and I like them all. I like all my sisters in Christ. But, uh, um, yeah, anyway, boy, I got off the track there. Uh, God loves you. God couldn't give any more for your salvation than he's given, right? And God couldn't make it easier. Saving faith is active receptive trust. As many as received him, it's not just mental assent, full consent of the will. Lord, I'm a sinner. That's the Holy Spirit convicting you of that. I can't fix it. Nicodemus came meeting Jesus thinking he might be able to fix it, but he wasn't sure he'd done it good enough. Jesus said, that's not going to work. But I believe you can because you pay for my sins and rose again, and I want you to. It's active consent of the will. I want you to. Okay? That's saving faith. That's our gospel presentation of today, right? Um, I wish I had remembered to go to that slide, but it's too late. Um, long story short, I can remember through high school, I hated English grammar until I finally figured out you can diagram sentences in the Bible and understand them better. And then I fell in love with grammar. Uh, you got a main clause. God loved the world. Subject, predicate, direct object. <laughs> Uh, and that's what that's talking about, right? That's that theology there. Result clause. Hoste in the Greek tells you the result of God's love was he gave his son. Okay, now, you know, uh, Jessica uh, Cameron can uh, give without loving, but he can't love without giving. You know? that, that's a good thing for husbands to remember. Uh, you can give without loving, you can go through the motions, but you can't love without giving. Lovers are givers. Uh, God loved the world. He gave his son. Monogonese means unique, only one is kind. And the purpose of God's love, giving the son to be lifted up, as he just said in verse 14, to pay for our sins, is so that all those who believe in him, moral people, religious people like Nicodemus, immoral people like the one we're going to see next week in Sychar and Samaria, shall not lake of fire final judgment. There's no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Your standing will never be at issue. But have as a present abiding possession eternal life. For God the Father didn't send his Son in the world to judge the world, but that the world might be saved through him. The one who believes in him, it happens one heart at a time, is not judged. Is is a gnomic present. Is never ever under judgment. And by the way, when it says shall not perish there, uh, who else is a grammar fanatic? Anybody like English grammar? What do you know about double negatives in English? If somebody says, I'm not going to church today. I mean, pretend like I woke up on a Sunday morning saying, Debbie, I'm not going to church today. That'd be bad because people might notice if I don't show up. Then I say, well, I guess I'm not not going to go to church. What do I mean by that? I'm going to church, right? So in English, double negative is not necessary because it's it's just it's ridiculous. Just say I'm going to church. Don't say I'm not not going. Just say I'm going, right? 
But in Greek, a double negative is emphatic negation. And that not perish is may, Not not. Is not ever under any circumstances going to perish. This is not probation by faith. It's salvation by faith. God the Father did not send the Son of the world to judge the world. We already stood condemned. Even if we're moral, we're far from the perfection of God. But that the world might be saved through him, the one who believes is not judged will never come under judgment. Romans 5, 8 says, uh, having been justified by faith, we have peace with God. Romans 8, 1 says there's no condemnation for those who believe in Christ Jesus. But the one who does not believe in Christ for salvation stands judged already because all he's got is his own sin, negatives, and positives, and it's not good enough. It's not going to work. So the Lord is thinking here of people like Nicodemus, moral, religiously orthodox people who depend on their own merit, and that's kind of the ultimate insult about God. You know, as Galatians says, if we could earn salvation on our own, Christ died needlessly. Why is he dying for your sins if you can earn it yourself? Look at verse uh, uh, 19 through 21. Ultimately, this is why people face God's righteous judgment. The light, Jesus, the Savior, came into the world to do the work of salvation for us. And yet people generally... He was in the world, world was made by him, world did not know him, came into his own, his own did not receive him, but to each individual does receive him, has eternal life kind of thing. And yet people generally love, choose the darkness, and the darkness here is trusting that they can be good enough to save themselves instead of trusting in Jesus. We tend to think of darkness as kidnapping or rape or murder, and that is darkness. It's not good. I'm not for any of those things. But here, the darkness Nicodemus is in is in the eternal insecurity trap of thinking, I hope I'm good enough to go to heaven when I die because I've been a really good Jew. But I know I'm not perfect. That's exactly where Martin Luther was when he got saved. As a good monk, he was trying to earn his own salvation and realized that he's not perfect. He wasn't good enough. Um, yeah, so the one that... Uh, and yet people generally choose the darkness, in this case... Uh, trusting in their own goodness for salvation. For everyone who does that which is wrong in this context is clinging, as somebody said, their guns and their religion, clinging to their own personal righteousness, hates the light, hates, uh, waters down the blood of Christ, as it were, who does the work for salvation, and does not come to the light in part for fear that his or her deeds will be exposed as worthless for salvation. Yeah, somebody, you're talking to... You know, it's, it's a miracle anytime somebody gets saved. As Homer once famously said, that's the greatest miracle. Somebody was complaining we weren't praying for enough miracles around here once, and I pray for miracles all the time. I pray that some people will show up. That's a miracle for me, but uh, we don't pray for miracles enough. And Homer, the elders meeting, you probably forgot this, said, you know, we, Bob had just come to faith like six weeks before. I said, isn't salvation the greatest miracle? And I, yeah, it's a pretty good one, you know, for me, but uh, one for this person. But, uh, yeah. It's a, it's a, it's a miracle. Boy, I wish I remember why I said that, but it's probably had some kind of context there. Uh, but the one who does come, and, and by the way, yeah, the, the idea that, uh, somebody like Bob, and he's like 80 years old, uh, he, in his mind, he was a patriotic guy, he was flying combat missions before Pearl Harbor in World War II. I mean, how do you beat that? You know, try to be a good person, he knew that he wasn't perfect, but he thought God graded on a curve and he earned it, you know? And he'd been begging his whole life on that, and then for him to have to put that stuff away and say, that's not good enough. You know, repenting from dead works. You don't just repent from your sin, you change your mind about your dead works. You just give up any hope of earning it. Uh, that's a big part of repentance too. Uh, but the one who does experience Jesus as the truth, who dares to trust in him for eternal salvation, uh, results in their fruit in their salvation, their deeds, their good, good deeds as the effect of salvation can be manifested as really being brought by God. Take this to heart. Here's the happy ending. Martin Luther called John 3.16 the gospel in a verse, and it only becomes clearer and more beautiful if that's possible when we read it in the context here. Unless We don't usually take the time to do that. And revel in the truth that salvation before God and the possession of eternal life is not based on any good thing in us. It's not something we do for God. It's something he's done for us, and he'll give it to us as a gift purely on the perfections of the person and work of Jesus Christ. Uh, the rest of the story about Nicodemus, real quick, 
in John 7, a couple years later when the Sanhedrin is talking about kind of doing the best to put him out of his misery, Nicodemus says to them, our law doesn't judge a man unless it first hears from him and knows what he's doing, does it? And they answered him, you're not from Galilee too, are, are you? Search and see, no prophet comes out of Galilee. So he stood up for Jesus against the peer pressure when the Sanhedrin's really getting rolling that last year. And then after the death on Friday, just before sundown, we read in John 19, after these things, the death and the, uh, the body is taken off the cross, Joseph of Arimathea, being a disciple of Jesus, but a secret one. John uses the term disciple differently than Matthew, Mark, and Luke. For fear of the Jews, asked Pilate, the Roman governor, that he might take away the body of Jesus for a decent burial, and Pilate gave permission. He came, therefore, and took away his body, and Nicodemus came also. This is the guy who was worried about his mortality, didn't think he might be good enough to go to heaven. He's now a believer. He comes out of the closet, if not before this, expressly by giving the crucified Lord, knowing he's going to come back, um, a, a decent burial. It goes on from there. So as believers saved by grace through faith is now our responsibility and a privilege, not just for James or me because we're clergy, to live for the one who died for us and to live and share the grace of God in our lives and with others, not just on Sundays and Wednesdays either. And I like the way Andrew prayed about, uh, you know, uh, I forgot the turn of the phrase now that he used, but something in that opening prayer, but uh, uh, may uh, may the word you know, kind of uh, direct our works or something like that. And I thought that was quite good. So next time you read John 3.16, realize you've got the whole gospel in a verse. You can use those three points. God couldn't love you any more than he already loves you. God couldn't give any more for you than he's given for you. And explain that. And God couldn't make it any clearer how to receive this gift by faith in Jesus, except in Jesus. It's not becoming a first a, a good Baptist or a good Catholic or a good uh, Presbyterian. It's faith in Christ. And then do those other things you want to. But uh, be aware of that. And also just be aware of this context is all about salvation by good works cannot work, will not work. If you're more used to the flip side of that, you're, de- you're a dirty, evil sinner and you need salvation, we're going to talk about that next week. Come back next week. We'll cover that. Okay. Let's have a word of prayer. Lord Jesus, let this uh, Theology 101 Lesson 1A, as the Lord calls it, penetrate deep in our spirits and our souls and our minds and our hearts so that we might be people of grace. If there's anybody here who's not from the depth of their heart, repented of their dead good works, they can't be good enough to earn it. Uh, realize that you are in the business of saving sinners. Draw, draw them to yourself to believe and receive Jesus as Savior. Uh, for believers here who may become under condemnation, and maybe justly so, maybe they're being convicted of stuff they're thinking and doing that's way off the reservation, Help them to realize you're not going to be any less gracious to them as they kind of get back on the wagon and get back into fellowship. You're not going to be any less gracious to them than you would be to an unbeliever coming initially for the gift of salvation. And for the rest of us, just help us to be able to think more profoundly and contextually about uh, this very, very strategic statement in the middle of this passage, John 3.16. We pray it that you would be glorified. In Jesus' name, amen.